brief introduction. It occurs to me that there's probably, uh, of all the people here in the room, you probably fall into one of two categories. There could be a smaller category of folks that I haven't really gotten to meet yet. And so you're looking up here and you're saying, hmm, I wonder who that guy is. And what is he doing teaching Sunday school? The other group are people that say, I know exactly who that is. And what is he doing teaching Sunday school? <laughs> so whichever group you're in, we'll see what happens an hour from now. If it was a good or bad idea. But um, my name is Nathan Carruth, if, if there's those of you that aren't sure who I am. And um, when, when the elders, or Joe Oliver, asked me if I'd be willing to teach Sunday school some months ago, um, it was back in January or February, um, I thought about it and prayed about it and uh, you know, soon enough told him, yes, I'd be willing to do that. And I asked Joe, I said, Joe, well, what do you want me to teach on? And... Joe could have probably told me anything at all, and I would have been glad to teach whatever topic he wanted to tell me. But the thing that he said was probably the last thing I wanted to hear, and that was, oh, we'll just leave that up to you. You can figure that out. So I had to come up with a topic myself, and Joe gave me some good advice. And he said, well, maybe you should just teach on something that you've been learning yourself. Um, and that's obviously very good advice. Um, and so right about that time, I had been reading um, a book by John Owen. It's a small little book here called The Mortification of Sin. Um, and as I was reading it, there were quite a few things that um, I was coming across through the course of, um, of going through this book that was really helping me to better understand uh, the way that I either did a good job or in most cases did a bad job um, battling the sin that was in my heart. It had been... Um, very useful for me in that regard. And so it seemed uh, perhaps sensible. Well, if it's been useful to me, maybe I can just use that as a framework to teach Sunday school for these uh, three weeks that I've been given this week and, and two weeks following. Um, in addition to this little book, there's a couple other resources I use just to tell you what um, else has been uh, going into these lessons. John Owen wrote another book called Indwelling Sin in Believers that is kind of similar to the mortification of sin, and I use this one as well. And then Brent uh, recommended something to me uh, that was actually also very helpful, and it's a much newer book um, written in 98 by uh, Chris Lungard called The Enemy Within, Straight Talk About the Power and Defeat of Sin. And actually this was interesting because what the author of this book has done is he took these two books, these two works by John Owen, and he basically retold them in a much more readily understandable language that you and I would speak today. So I would recommend all three of these books to you. They're written here on your notes. I think they're all in the library. They're easy to find. Um, and they are kind of what these lessons are, are coming from. So let's see. Let me go ahead and say a word of prayer, and then we will um, consider the topic, the means and methods of the mortification of sin. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you have uh, brought us here together today to um, worship and to be edified and uh, encouraged by your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would use this time, uh, that it would be beneficial um, for each of us. Father, help us to not um, make much of John Owen, but to make much of you and the work that you've done on our behalf to save us from our sins. Father, and help us to consider the job that we have to do um, to daily attack the sins that are in our hearts. Father, help us to do this so that you would be glorified and that we would be um, blessed as a, as a result. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, if you want to, well, certainly, whether you want to or not, let's go ahead and just turn to Romans chapter 8. Um, I guess if you don't want to, you don't have to, but... Uh, Romans chapter 8 is where uh, we'll start out this morning, and in fact, uh, the entire book here, and I'll say a little bit more about it uh, briefly, um, the entire book is basically an exposition on one verse in Romans chapter 8, Romans 8, 13. Um, so just briefly, uh, I didn't say a whole lot about it. Um, John Owen, most of you probably know a little bit about him. Um, some people may have been here some months ago when uh, the esteemed uh, church historian Matt Scheffler uh, gave uh, lessons on John Owen during the Puritan era of church history. Some people would consider Owen to be uh, the greatest theologian of the English Puritan era. 
um, just for the depth of his thought and the things that he wrote. He's very highly regarded. I gave you some quotes there um, of some other folks um, today to think very highly of Owen. But this book was written in uh, 1656 originally, and Dwelling Sin was written in 1667. Um, these are old works, but they are very useful for us uh, today. So uh, let me get three volunteers to read uh, several verses here in Romans 8. We want to read verses 1 through 13, and then we'll look at 13 in particular. But I want to be able to kind of understand what the context is here um, so we know the direction that Paul is coming from. So who would like to read Romans 8, verse 1 through 4? Chuck, okay. Then 5 through 8? Thanks, Josh. And then 9 through 13. Matt, okay. Go right ahead, Chuck, and we'll just read them all, all in a row. Thanks, gentlemen. So you may have noticed in verse 12, there's a little transition there when Paul says, so then. And I think what's happening here is what Paul is saying is that in light of what's come before, verses 8, or I'm sorry, 1 through 11, once we get to 12 and 13, he's going to tell us something to do. So let's just consider real quick the things that he is telling us, because uh, that informs what he's asking us to do in 12 and 13. It seems that Paul is really just stacking up kind of blessing upon blessing, uh, all of these results of our salvation. Um, I don't have things uh, for you on your notes uh, about this context, but let me just run through these real quick. Um, it seems that 1 through 11, Paul is saying um, so many things that come to us because we're saved, so many wonderful things. In verse 1, he says, first of all, we won't be condemned. Verse 2, we've been set free from sin and death. Verse 3 points out that God has made a way of salvation for us, and that's because of his Son. Verse 4, he says, Jesus' righteousness is fulfilled in us. In verse 6, he says that our mind is set on the Spirit. And of course, verse 9, that's only possible because the Spirit dwells within us as believers. Verse 10 says we are alive with Christ. And in verse 11, he gives us that hope that just as Jesus was raised, so we also will be raised. So all of these things that he's telling us, I think, are kind of stacking up one on another. Wonderful benefits we have as believers. And all of that, I think, leads to verse 12 and 13, where he says, So then, brethren, we're under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. If you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Let's think about these two verses. This is the kind of the first blanks on, on your page one here. Let's think about what these verses are really telling us. First of all, these are easy questions, and I'll see how interactive that y'all want to be. Um, number one, to whom are these verses directed? Are they directed to believers or non-believers? Believers. I think that's pretty clear. He says the word brethren right there in verse 12. 
and everything coming before that I've just listed out is all talking about believers in Christ. So it's directed to believers. There's a condition, a very small word in verse 13 gives us indication there's a condition. What's that word? If, exactly. It's telling us if we do something, then there will be a result. So the condition is if. Number three, the means of accomplishment. He's telling us there's a means of the way we're going to do this by, by the Spirit, exactly. Verse 13 says, if by the Spirit. That's the means of accomplishment. Number four, the duty or the command that he's actually giving us. What is it he's actually telling us to do? What was that? Mortify, right? Most of our Bibles probably don't use that word, but it says putting to death the deeds of the body, to put them to death. That's the command. And then he gives us the very last part of verse 13, a promise. And what's the promise? We'll, we'll live, exactly. Now, that's wonderful, and that's true, and that's the thrust of what we're talking about, but I think it's also important to realize that there's another condition and another result in the first part of verse 13, and that is if we're living according to the flesh, what's the result there? That we'll die. And we'll talk more about what that really means shortly. Um, but for now, this is basically what these verses are telling us. And all of that together, I think, gives Owen his thesis, the thesis of his book, which is at the bottom of your page, the choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin should also make it their business all of their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. And I think this is an important distinction to be made as we look at this topic, that there is a condemning power of sin. There's also an indwelling power of sin. And there's two different things we need to keep in mind. And we're going to look at this more in depth. Let's see. So, we've already used the word mortify. This is not a word we often use in conversation today, or maybe ever. But simply put, mortify means to put something to death, right? To kill. Some definitions there that might be helpful. Top of page two. To mortify means to put to death. Of course, Owen is always able to take what we would say in two words and say it in 20. So this is his definition of mortify, which is to take away the principle of all of its strength, vigor, and power so that it cannot act or exert or put forth any proper actings of its own. So this is entirely put to death, not that there's degrees of death, but he can describe it in such a way that I would not be able to. Um, now, the body, another definition I think is important when he talks about putting to death the deeds of the body. The body is not, I don't think, in this case, like our hands and our feet, the things we're actually doing, bodily actions. The body, I would say, is really the flesh or indwelling sin. When he says putting to death the deeds of the body, those are sin, flesh, inside our heart, not necessarily the actions that we may, things we say or do. Third definition there, what is life really talking about here? I think there's two different aspects of life. It's, of course, eternal life in the future, which will be promised as believers, but it's also a vibrant, joyous life today while we're still on the earth. So two different aspects of life. And then when we think about what death means in this context, I think it's also twofold. Talking about bodily death when our body dies and decays in the grave, but also a death that would be an eternal spiritual death with those eternal consequences. So two different aspects of death. Certainly, if there's questions, feel free to raise a hand as I, as I go. Um, so if we have a clear understanding of what this verse is asking us to do, let's back up into chapter 7. You probably still have it open there in your lap. Someone volunteer to read Romans 7, 21 through 23. Who will read that? 
Jimmy, go right ahead. Yes, sir. Thank you. So, I think in order for us to really begin to talk about how we actually put to death our flesh, we need to understand several things about our flesh. And these three verses uh, from chapter 7 go a long way to helping us understand several things about our flesh. First of all, first key truth about the flesh is I would say that indwelling sin or the flesh is a law. That's number one. Indwelling sin is a law. And Paul says in verse 21, I find the principle that evil is present in me. The word principle could also be rendered law. You probably would see it in your footnote there in your Bible. But principle and law, I think, could be used interchangeably. And he's saying that this is a law. Now, the interesting thing is, is that throughout this chapter, chapter 7, Paul is talking all about the law that is the Old Testament law, the things that God has given us, the way that he expects us to live and the things we should do to obey and the things that should govern our lives. That's the law from the Old Testament, which you'll see in throughout chapter 7, probably capitalized law in your Bible. But now he's using law in a different sense here in 21 through 23. And perhaps there's some irony there that he's saying that, okay, we know that there's the Old Testament law and it's told us what to do. But it would appear now, Paul is telling us there is another law that's actually within us, and in a sense, it's also telling us what to do. So there is definitely still within us, even though we're believers, and, and those of us that are in Christ, there is still this law of sin that wields a certain amount of power in our lives. And it was helpful to think about an illustration that I think... Um, Lungard gave that you might also think about the law of gravity when you think about the law of sin. That whether we understand gravity or not, we know that it's working. You know, it's always exerting some certain force on us. We can't stop it. It's never going to stop. Gravity is what it is. In the same way, I think the law of sin could be seen that way. Whether we really understand the way it works, and I think that the word gives us a lot of clues as to how it works, but whether we understand it or not, the law of sin is acting in our hearts. And it's exerting a certain force on us. Does that make sense? It's helpful, I think, to think about that. But it's not a perfect analogy because gravity is something on the outside influencing us, whereas the law of sin is actually on the inside in our hearts. Now, before we get to the second truth about the flesh, this is a question that I think um, is helpful to be, to be asked and answered. Thinking about the fact that there's still this law of sin in our hearts, I think we have to understand, well, to what degree has sin really been defeated in the life of a believer? Because isn't it true that Christ has defeated sin and death? It is true, but we also have to understand that, this is back to Owen's thesis, while Christ has defeated the condemning power of sin, for those of us that are in Christ, we will not be condemned ultimately because of our sin. The fact is, there is still sin in our lives, and that's never going to be removed from us entirely until we die and are taken to glory. So that's the difference in the condemning power of sin, which is totally defeated by Christ. The indwelling power of sin is still something that we have to deal with for the rest of our lives. So it's a law, number one. And number two, this law is actually inside of us. The law is inside of us. Paul says that in verse 21. He says, he finds this present in me. And it's interesting to think about this in that it's probably true to say that very few people actually ever come to terms with this and ever realize that that law is really working in them. And it's also true to say that only a believer would ever realize this. An unbeliever is carried along by this law. It influences them, and they sin, not even ever thinking about it or realizing this is happening in their hearts. I think it's only by God's grace that he allows us to see that this is there. It's inside us, but I think rarely 
and not very often do people really understand this. I think if people really saw this clearly, we would probably, probably see more prayers like Paul prays in verse 21, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? I think very often we are um, not paying attention to this sin, the way that Paul is very clearly affected by it here in chapter 7. So the law is inside of us. And then number three, the fourth truth about the flesh. You know, it would be, it'd be nice to think that this indwelling sin only kind of came at us when we were at our kind of weak moments, when we were uh, kind of downtrodden or depressed or kind of at our worst. But I think what Paul is also saying here is that this indwelling sin actually comes at us even when we're at our best. So that's the third truth. We find this law even when we're at our best. Paul says that he wishes to do good in verse 21. And in fact, in 22, I joyfully concur with the law of God and the inner man. Certainly, if anyone would be joyfully concurring with the law, it would be Paul. But he found that even then, as much as he loved the law and knew how the law was good for him, even then he found that this sin was still in his heart, still there. And then number four, the fourth truth about the flesh, this law never rests. I think that's really probably what gives rise to a prayer that, like Paul prayed, who's going to deliver me from this? Because it never stops. This law of sin presents a constant tug of war in our hearts. And we, I think we would agree with Paul that we want to do good. We know the things that we ought to do. But at the same time, evil is right there with us, causing us or trying to get us to do the very opposite. So it never rests, was number four. Now, another illustration that's a little more lighthearted, but I think also useful, is um, I think uh, Lungar gave in his book, this was a story or an illustration actually that he had seen from G.K. Chesterton, that um, imagine right now that if a rhinoceros walked through those doors, okay? Imagine if a rhino came bursting into this room. Imagine what might happen. He's going to be trampling us down underfoot, knocking over chairs, making us spill our coffee, worst of all. And it could be very chaotic if a rhino burst into this room. Now, any one of us might be the first to jump up and look the rhino square in the eyes and say, rhinoceroses, rhinoceros? <laughs> While it's clear that you have great power here, you have no authority whatsoever, okay? So the rhinoceros is very powerful. He can do whatever he wants just because of what he is. We can't stop him from doing it. But he has no authority to be here. We didn't ask him to come. He wasn't invited. He's not under the elder's authority. He's a rhinoceros. He's going to do what he wants. And I think really that that's another way to think about the flesh. Well, it has no real authority in our hearts. It has still great power, and it's able do great harm to us, much as a rhinoceros would if you were here today. But again, the difference to this analogy is that would be an external thing happening outside of us. But again, we have to understand that indwelling sin is within our hearts. And because of that, because it's in our hearts, it has several irritating advantages. Bottom of page two, the flesh's irritating advantages the first one there, we see that indwelling sin wears out its welcome. Indwelling sin wears out its welcome. And that's easily enough understood because if it's in our heart, it's going to be wherever we are. Wherever we go, we take the flesh with us. It's always going to be there. I think about my four-year-old son, Benjamin, and the things that he's prone to do these days. I don't mind saying he's prone to picking his nose. And I think about, you know, the flesh is like that booger that you just can't get off your finger. No matter what you do, it's not going to come off. 
and I assume your laughter means you understand what I mean. You've seen your own children do that, perhaps. Maybe it's just mine, but maybe you've seen it. So indwelling sin wears out its welcome. It's like the house guest that comes in and won't leave. So who would like to read Galatians 5.17? Let me see that hand. Come on. Okay, Matt will do that. Hold on, Matt. And then someone else, go ahead and look up James 1.14. Who will be looking that up? Doug will be ready for that. Okay, go ahead with Galatians, Matt. Flesh sets its desire against the spirit. So I think what this is telling us for number two here, the second irritating advantage, is that indwelling sin does not observe a Sabbath or it does not take a break because the flesh and the spirit are constantly in this battle, as Paul says there in Galatians. The desire is set against each other, opposition to one another. So indwelling sin does not observe a Sabbath. And I find this to work itself out practically in my own life, and I think you, you might as well, is that those good things that we know we ought to do, and you all just pick a couple when it comes time in the morning to wake up and go downstairs, and I know that I need to be in the Word. I know that I need to be in prayer. It's just a very basic thing that we must do as believers. It's almost um, mind-boggling to me the degree that my flesh tells me to instead of doing that I should do one of two other things and this is what it is for me think about yourself perhaps but instead of going downstairs and reading the word and being in prayer my flesh tells me no you would be better off if you just kept sleeping right you need to get more rest or second of all you know go ahead and get up but that'll be a chance to get to the office earlier but you've got so much to do there be better off getting more work done at the office. So that's how I see just one little example of the flesh and the spirit are constantly in an opposition with one another. Whatever it is, the good that we know that we want to do, the flesh in our heart is going to be right there with us telling us, you know, you'd be better off doing this instead. Okay, James 1.14. Doug, you had that? Thank you. He's enticed by his own desire or by his own lust. The third irritating advantage in your line, and I've been long enough to write this, but this is what it's what I have here. Indwelling sin does its dirty work with the greatest of ease. Indwelling sin does its dirty work with the greatest of ease. And I think one reason for that that we see here in James is that we're enticed and carried away by our own lust. These are things that are particular to us. A temptation that's constantly battling in my heart is probably not, it may not be the same one that's in your heart. But each of our flesh, knowing our hearts, is able to bring up something specifically for us. And that's why it's able to do this so easily, that it... Our heart is our heart, and it knows what we are more likely to maybe to go do instead of doing the right thing. Kind of tailor-made temptation comes already in our hearts. And we know from Hebrews 12.1, you know, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us, right? It's very easy to be entangled by this because it's in our own heart, our own lust, our own desires. Let me share a quote at this point. I think the point that I'm trying to make here is that this flesh is pervasive. You can't get away from it. It's always going to be there. Speaking of the flesh, Owen writes, It can submit to no terms of peace, not even a truce. This enemy is never quiet and never conquered. 
no man can expect rest from his lust except by its death, that is, the death of the lust, or of absolute freedom except by his own death, that is, when we die one day. Now, some seek peace from their corruptions by trying to satisfy them, which Paul would describe as making provision for the flesh. Now, what is this in reality? This is to douse a fire using combustible materials. It will only inflame and increase it. Now, if we part with some of the goods for an enemy, it may satisfy him, but enmity will have everything and is not more satisfied than if it had received nothing at all. You cannot bargain with fire to take only part of your house. All you can do is put the fire out, right? Does that make sense? You can't bargain with a fire. Okay, so don't, don't burn any farther. No, no, no. You've got to find a way to put it out. So, the flesh is irritating advantages. Page three in your notes. There's particular things the flesh tends to do by and large, and that's where it finds its success. Let's think about these for a while. First and foremost, number one, this, and this should be no surprise, actually, real quick, who'd like to look up John 8.44? Go right ahead, Russ. John 8.44. Whenever you get there, just read it. So John chapter 8, I think one of the most amazing chapters in the Bible, this, this dialogue between Jesus and the Jews, this back and forth, and this tension kind of builds things that Jesus is saying and the questions they're asking. And here in verse 44, Jesus tells it just like it is. He tells these people that you are of your father the devil. And then he says something very frightening about the devil. He says that he was a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. He speaks, and whenever he speaks, he speaks a lie. So, number one, particular tactic of the flesh, be trickery and deceit. And if you really think about this, how disturbing this would be, that if any one of us had a friend or a family member, someone we were close to, imagine if you had this person that was close to you, and yet you found kind of by degrees, every time you talked with them, every time you interacted with them, they were being dishonest some way or another. And imagine it kind of built up and so that eventually you're talking to someone and you know whatever they're telling you is not true. Now, I think that we would probably be able to see through that. We can generally, in most cases, begin to understand when someone's not being honest with us, especially if it goes over a long period of time. We probably would begin to say, okay, I'm going to stop listening to what you're saying because I know what you're telling me is not true. Now, the difference between a person that we're talking to and Satan or any of his demons or minions or the flesh within us, it tends to deceive us a lot more readily than if it was somebody talking to us, right? Its deception can be far more subtle, tailor-made, like I said before, for our particular weaknesses. And Jesus says that Satan, when he speaks, he's speaking his native language of lying. That is the way that he speaks. It's very frightening, actually. So trickery and deceit is this first tactic. I'm sorry, I should have asked for this before. First Peter 5.8, would someone get that one? Okay, and then does anyone, who had James before? Did you still have James, Doug? Okay, whoever was going to do First Peter, go right ahead, then we'll come back to Doug again. Whenever you're ready, go ahead. Okay, thank you. So back to First Peter. Peter's telling us to be of sober spirit and be on the alert. Okay. The only way I think that we're going to be able to understand when our flesh is trying to deceive us, little point there, at this point the battle is in our mind. Okay, This is the first 
place we have to identify if we're, tr- if we're being deceived or not. The battle is in our minds. That's why we're told to be alert and be of sober spirit. And then secondly, knowing that the battle's in our mind, we have to understand, well, what is the flesh's real objective here? What is its goal? Because I think that a lot of times I have maybe er- erroneously thought that the flesh or, or, or even the devil's goal was just to get me to sin. You know, if I can get him to fall into this temptation, mission accomplished. But really, the flesh's objective or goal is far worse than just getting us to sin. Doug read from James. What was... I should have gone there myself. Get back there. When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So here we are again at death. The flesh's objective is our own death. Um, and it's, I think, a slow death by degrees. James describes kind of this progression that's happening here. We're enticed, we're carried away. When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and then eventually accomplished, it leads to our death. Now, let me see. I have another quote that's helpful here, thinking about the fact that our flesh really seeks our death. Owen writes, talking about someone that's entangled in sin. Uh, Someone so entangled under the power of corruption may have no clear evidence of participating in the grace of God. Such a one cannot claim any assurance that he is delivered from destruction. Destruction from the Lord should be an appropriate fear for him. Such a one should seriously consider this be the end of his course and ways. It's true that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but now who really has the comfort of that promise? Who can claim it for themselves? Well, those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So what are we saying here is that at this point we have to understand and come to grips with the fact that there's a possibility, even though we may be professing Christians for many years, in fact, But if there are persistent sins in our lives that are happening over and over again, and if we're not seeking to do battle with them and seeking their demise, it's possible that, in fact, we may not be believers at all. Now, I kind of tremble to stand here and say that, but I think we have to understand that the the words that are being used here in James and also in Romans are strong enough, I think, to lead us to that conclusion. That if our flesh is being victorious over us and we're constantly being beset and laying down to temptation and we're not battling it, there's a possibility that we're not, in fact, in Christ at all. Now, some would say, well, this does, does this not lead people away from faith? Well, Owen answers, no. Whatever evidence we may have of our own salvation, we must acknowledge that an evil path leads to destruction believe otherwise is atheism, which means to say that if you're living in such a way that you don't believe there's ever going to come an account for your sins to be had, it's essentially saying that you don't believe that God exists. Now, we're not throwing away the good evidence of a personal interest in Christ, but an evil path throws doubt upon the reality of it. We should surely fly from a path that leads to death. The realization that the end of such a path is destruction should move us to free ourselves from the entanglement of our lusts. So this was fairly important for me to realize that the goal of our flesh is not just to get us to commit a sin, not just to get me to sleep in instead of studying, not just the goal is not to make me be uncaring towards my wife or to fail to discipline my children in a certain way or to maybe want to kick the neighbor's dog. That's not the flesh's goal, ultimately. The flesh's goal is our own death, which I think gives rise to one of Owen's more famous quotes there, always be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So we've seen trickery and deceit being a tactic. 
tactic number two, the tactic of the flesh, is separating God's remedy of grace from the design of grace. I'll say that again. Separating God's remedy of grace from the design of grace. You could also say it like this. You don't have to write all this down. You could also say this is abusing God's grace to make sin seem less sinful. Let me go to Titus. I'll read this one. Titus 2, 11 and 12. But the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. What is this telling us? That God's grace is designed to make us holy, right? That's what it says. The grace of God has appeared, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. So this is the design of God's grace, is to make us holy. Now, what the flesh would rather have us believe is not think about the design of God's grace, that we should be holy, but make us think about the remedy of God's grace, which is what? That God will forgive us when we sin. Okay, That's the remedy of God's grace. He'll forgive us when we sin. Now, let me read that again. I'm sorry, the flesh's tactic is to make us forget the design that we're saved to be holy and instead make us only think of the remedy of grace that will be forgiven if we sin. Now, I think for me this is probably the most important thing that I learned during this part of the preparation for, for this lesson. Is that really what this is, the flesh trying to make us forget the design of grace and only consider the remedy of grace, this is what I would call a half gospel lie. We have to understand it for that. Because the idea that, well, if I go ahead and submit to temptation, and I go ahead and go ahead and decide to do this and sin, well, God, he'll forgive me for that. We know that our God is gracious. There's forgiveness when we sin, and that's true. And there's also um, important things that the Bible says, like in Psalm 103, that as far as the east is from the west, so far as he... Um, removed our sin from us, okay? There is, a, in a sense, that God totally removes and forgets our sin. And that's what our flesh wants us to remember, that God will forget this sin. God might even overlook it. What we have to remind ourselves is, while that is true in a sense, it's also true that God has remembered every one of our sins and poured them out, his wrath upon his son on the cross. Every one of our sins was not forgotten when Jesus died. And that's what we must remember in that moment of white-hot temptation. The flesh would have us believe that grace, grace is easy, grace is cheap. You know, Dan was all over this in his sermon, that grace comes at a great cost. That our sins, every one of them, has been paid for by Christ, praise the Lord, but it came at a great cost. know this, and we know this, but just to give us a scripture, 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. And this kind of trickery and deceit gives rise even to some bad song lyrics. I'll lighten the mood. Listen to this. Saved by grace, O blessed condition, I can sin all I want and still have remission. Right? That's, that's a bad hymn that we're not going to sing in here at Calvary, right? But that's what the flesh would have us believe. Number three. The third tactic of the flesh is to drive every thought of God from our minds. Drive every thought of God from our minds. 
You could also think this is just like distraction or even aversion, which is kind of a, a stronger word. Distraction is, you know, oh, look at that over there. But aversion is, I want to stay away from that. Drive every thought of God from our minds. And this goes back, I think, to what I may have said before, and that um, when we know the right we ought to do, and yet the flesh is right there trying to convince us that, no, no, it would really be better for you if you did this instead. This is that distraction. Let's go ahead and turn to Mark, if you would. Mark 14. Mark 14, who would like to read 37 and 38? Go ahead, Doug, thank you. Right, this is very familiar, and is familiar because it's so appropriate um, that you know if ever there was a time when the disciples would have done well to pray this would have been that time and yet they found themselves overcome with wanting to sleep instead I think this is where the flesh is driving away that thought of God from their minds Now, also, it's worthwhile to say that this aversion to the things of God and the distraction may become so severe that our success and our private spiritual disciplines may become so small that we may give up those private disciplines entirely and instead just take care of public duties. Does that make sense? Is that if we're not on the watch for this, and we don't realize what's happening in our private devotional lives especially, when no one else sees us, if our success at those becomes so small, it's very possible the flesh would have us kind of just swap and say, okay, forget about your private prayer and devotional time. Instead, just focus on the things you do externally, being at church, serving those around you, um, which are good things. They're wonderful things, but I think that would be to our detriment, giving up private things we do only in favor for the things that I think are sometimes far much easier to do in public. And Owen says, through the craft of Satan, some develop the foolish opinion that one can live for God without the need for communion with him. That's the danger of giving up the things we do in private because they are so difficult sometimes. And only just attempting to live for God in front of other people. So, we're getting close to what mortification really is. Well, I say we're getting close. That'll really be next week. But, just a few more things I think we can understand about um, our flesh because it's possible as we know how cunning and tricky our flesh can be but our flesh might have us believe that we're actually mortifying sin when we're really not the last section here today is talking about what mortification is not first of all mortification is not to utterly root out and destroy sin but someone turn to Philippians 3.12 I'll go to 1 John. Go right ahead, sir. Thank you. Paul making clear that he hadn't already attained perfection. He, he was not there yet. None of us will get there in this life. John says it differently in similar thing that says it differently. First John 1.10 If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. That is, Christ, a liar. And his word is not in us. So mortification is not to totally get rid of sin in our lives because we have to understand the scripture's clear. 
that's not going to happen in this life. We're not going to totally be free from sin. Number two of what mortification is not, it is not just the changing of some outward aspects of sin. It's not just changing some outward aspect of sin. Because this is such a, you know, um, simple phrase, and, and Dan uses it often. He says, sin and righteousness are a matter of the heart. Exactly. That's what we're talking about. The flesh, the sin, our heart, it's within us. Now, you may have a certain sin in your heart that may cause you to do, do a certain thing, and you may think that, well, if you're, I'm going to entirely give that up. I'm not going to do that thing anymore, which is good. It would be good for us to stop doing something sinful. But if the sinful attitude or the desire is still in your heart, and you just go to doing something else that's still driven by that same sin, well, that's not mortifying your sin, really, is it? So just changing the outward aspect of sin is not mortification. Number three, mortification is not just the improvement of our natural condition. Not just the improvement of our natural condition. I would say this works itself out when we realize that there are things we're doing that are sinful, and so we decide, okay, well, I'm going to have a longer quiet time. I'm going to pray more fervently about this topic. I'm going to decide to do this, this, and this. I'm going to discipline myself for any number of things, which, again, those could be wonderful things to decide to do, but just deciding to do more things or do a better job at a certain spiritual discipline may not at all be mortifying that sin. Does that make sense? It's not just improving your natural condition. Number four, a sin is not mortified when it's merely diverted. A sin is not mortified when it's merely diverted. Now that's similar, I think, to just changing the outward aspects of sin. Again, that's exchanging maybe one wrong action for another one that is certainly not mortifying sin. And then number five, uh, and this is, is also, I think, kind of, eye-opening for me, occasional victories over sin are not mortification. Occasional victories over sin are not mortification. There's plenty of times when I would like to pat myself on the back saying, oh, I chose not to do that thing that I've done so many times in the past. Good for me. But I may find myself two weeks later, oh, I'm doing it again. Um, so occasional victories over a certain sin are not necessarily mortification. Now, that's what mortification is not. We'll get into what mortification is next week. And I forgot to say this at the beginning. I guess I should still say it now. Is that certainly, and I'm, I'm sure you're already or on the same page with me here, certainly don't think that I'm an expert on this topic and that I chose to talk about this because uh, I've reached you know, a certain holiness level. That's not why I'm talking about this. I'm talking about this for these three weeks because I think it was useful for me and I pray it will be useful for us too. Um, certainly, I'm welcome to any comments afterwards if I've said anything wayward I want to know about it. Um, if I've said anything wonderful, well, don't tell me that. I don't want to know that. Um, I'll get the big head and I'll have to mortify that sin. So, <laughs> I think that's all we have for today. Um, could I get uh, Damon, will you pray for us and we can go?